A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by our very own supervising producer and podcaster, Emily Yang and writer and programmer, Vanya Garraway. The Course of Love Never Did Run Smooth. It's Shakespeare, and if anyone knows about crowd-pleasing, compelling storytelling, it's him. Now, a good romantic comedy should have relatable roadblocks, and what better to stand in the way of two lovers than their families? Both our movies today are about the rocky road to a happily ever after, and they have a few things in common. They're both written by women, and one of them also directed by a woman. They were both surprise mega-hits, and they both launched careers into the stratosphere. We don't get mega-hit rom-coms very often, but when we do, they hit the cultural zeitgeist hard. You had me at hello, anyone? Now, let's get into the landscape for rom-coms in the early 2000s and why there was a need to watch people fall in love. Now, Vanny and I were talking uh, before the show started, started about the biggest thing to kind of notice is like late 90s you're looking at a lot of movies that are enemies to friends and that is always like a I think it's a very difficult balance it's still very when Harry met Sally approach but I think when Harry met Sally really is the gold standard of that where it's two people that just don't know each other yet having to grow as opposed to two nightmare humans eventually (laughs) being like perhaps we should be nightmares together Um, (laughs) and then the early 2000s it very much becomes focused on on women and then the relationships are peripheral it's women trying to become their best selves so uh, legally blonde bridget jones's diary that kind of thing what do you guys think i like that you brought up like when harry style is the gold standards because for me nora Ephron, she kind of went she should throw back like her, her style of writing was a throwback to basically her parents um were screenwriters in their era of um rom-coms you know like they wrote desk set you know Catherine Hepburn. Um, and so that where it's like about strong women who know themselves who you know just need to get to know the other person in order for them to follow them they're not antagonists to them you know they could be their friend um and then yeah the the, the switch it, later on is is a great switch you know it's a, it's i think it's a positive one to get out of that like they need to hate each other in order to um <laughs> to fall in love you know um, I think a little bit of like, you know, pushback is good in a rom-com where that, you know, they don't know each other. Um, and they're frustrated with each other. That's certainly the case with when Harry met Sally, but I like the transition in the audience. Yeah. I think it is a lot to do with the girl power movement that was happening. Like, uh, the Spice Girls came out and the Spice Girls feature heavily and <laughs> like Beckham. Uh, but I feel like, at that point, we were really about uplifting women or like supposedly about uplifting women. And we saw they saw that as a draw. Like the Spice Girls were like the biggest band since the Beatles, not just in the UK, everywhere. I Like, I don't know if you guys remember, it was like a two year period where it was just Spice Girls everywhere, everything Spice Girls. And I was a kid at that time, so I was really inspired by that. And I found myself drawn to stories like Legally Blonde is one of my absolute favorite movies. And I love mm-hmm. that, yeah, there is a love story in there, but it is re- it is really about her growth. And there's a bonus, she gets the guy too. And I think that that's such a powerful yeah. message. Um, I know like um, 
Vanya and I have talked about like little women, for example, and like how people like often get down on Joe because she like ends up with a guy at the end and and it could be queerer is a theme that we talk about a lot. But I, I think like what I always love about the 1994 version of Little Women, for example, is like, she does get the guy, but she also gets a book. And I think that that is like a powerful message to send as well as you don't need the guy. It's like, you can, you can have it all. I grew up at the time of the girl power movement, but as we have discussed previously on this podcast, I was the kid with going to the punk shows. So the Spice Girls and that particular brand of feminism mm-hmm. didn't work for me. And in fact, that brand of feminism I found very manufactured and I was deliberately withdrawing from it. Now, as an adult, and we're going to talk about Benda Like Beckham and get into the Spice Girls more in that, that movement because it's so important, um, understanding what they did and what kind of autonomy they actually had over themselves in their careers, I am incredibly impressed. And I am incredibly impressed at even though their message of girl power, which I agree with you, Emily, 100% affected third wave feminism and affected what we see now as um, empowerment for women that I do think is not great in a lot of ways, uh, that's very infantilizing in some ways and, and, and whatnot. Um, but I think it, it, you're right. This was a, a liberative movement that we do get movies like this. Um, on the weird other end of the spectrum of another film we talked about this season, Crossroads mm-hmm. comes out of this same movement, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's also like, it's not just, about, oh, this is what we're talking about. It's like, oh, women are profitable, like, which is the dark side of it, right? Like, it's like, oh, the Space Girls sell records, they make movies, blah, blah, blah. We're going to capitalize. But boy, are they hot, and they were manufactured for the boys to watch. (laughs) Yes, yes, but so cute. I love them so much. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do think that it is, I think it was also giving women a, a... a permission to be powerful and sexy in in that way. At that time, see, I was a little probably I was older than Emily. I know, so I'm I I was at a different time in my life, and you know, it's like oh, this is watching a British invasion again. But you know, it's like danceable, <laughs> like music. So I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but then you know, it, like having that um the sexuality, you know, Sex and the City was still happening like there's this like opening up of like kind of going back to being like we didn't have to be like men to have be powerful we didn't have to act like men um stereotypically to (laughs) to have power and also you know we could be cute and then we can also be strong and so ben i look back on my it it makes sense it all makes sense because you know those bicycles are british it's british film you know it's like it's unbelievably like uh what's what's like intrinsically Um, yeah so so like perfect start kind of like perfect um coming together i think the other thing these films are doing too is that it's people looking for partners they've already got their own thing going on and this is why i think people get wrong about little women and when you go back and read the actual book as opposed to unfortunately the condensed version of the novel is that she ends up with who she ends up with because this is the right partner for her and the Mm -hmm. two of them bounce ideas off each other and they're there to build each other up and go together and that's what a lot of these films do like that's what happens in legally blonde that's what's happening in bed like beckham that's what happens like i mean the construction of my big flat fat Greek wedding, which is unlike any other rom-com out there, I think, that I've ever seen. When I was watching, I was like, no wonder this did so well, and no wonder all we've ever had are peril, uh, pale imitators, because I don't think people actually understand what makes this movie so special um, and what people really locked into. But we are going to get into that. So let's start out with Bend It Like Beckham. 
So when you get older and start to socialize, you become aware of things that your family does that other families don't do. Now, maybe you have a word that only your family uses, like blipvert, which is used by my family and perhaps nowhere else. Uh, but for children of first-generation immigrants, like Jess and Bendit like Beckham, it can seem like your family's traditions are standing of the way of who you want to be in the world you live in. At least, that's the way it seems in this light and bouncy rom-com that tries to tackle a lot of heavy topics, from racism and bigotry to sexism in sports and homophobia. Now, Vanya, you wanted to program this for your series. What about Bendit Like Beckham stands out for you? I my my series paid in sweat uh is a sports and uh celebration and sweat in cinema competition athleticism obviously like you know it's a football or soccer film so i and then on top of that i related to the character as being a first generation you know she's first generation british but i'm first generation canadian so i connected with her on that and you know, many years ago, I used to be an athlete. So, you know, I could, I could tap into the way she was thinking. Uh, and another reason is because I'm from Toronto, you know, and for specifically Scarborough, where, you know, there's a huge South, a South Asian community, you know, Toronto's like one of the most multicultural places on the planet, you know, and so there's going to be a lot of first generation Can- uh, Canadians here that will relate to, you know, her story. Um, to Jess's story. So there, there's, there were so many reasons why I should program this film on top of it. It's really great film. It's, you know, it's shot well, it's acted well, the script is, you know, wonderful, you know, so it's just a good movie that I wanted to, you know, program. Um, but those other reasons, you know, really matter. It like is actually personal to me. Like I, I rewatching it, I, I cried really hard. I, I, I forgot that I got, I would get emotional at this movie because I hadn't seen it in a long time. But I found myself in like in tears, like, you know, like really worked up because there's something about being a first generation um, person of immigrants that it's like there's a sacrifice that has to be made. If you can't um, have everything, you have to there's a sacrifice that other people I don't think understand. And you're pulled between two worlds all the time. You know, your parents are one way and then you know your friends are a certain way and you want to be that you are also that like i'm very canadian but my parents are caribbean so it it was just like oh i know they behave differently i know they expect different things from me and um my friends don't under a lot of my friends don't understand that so i could connect to her on that level why don't you give people uh, a little idea about what this film is about just a brief plot summary for us Ben and like beckham permanent niagara plays uh um, Jess and she's a first generation English um, young woman uh, her family's um, Indian and uh, they're Pun- Punjabi and she's obsessed with uh, David Beckham she loves uh, soccer or as they would call it football and um, one day she's out and uh, Kara Knightley's character Jules sees her um, playing playing uh, soccer and sees that she's quite skilled and asks her to come on to uh, to try out for uh, like a women's uh, uh, soccer league uh, which is being coached by um, Jonathan Reith yeah. Myers and uh and uh obviously there's some she has some restraints because her family's immigrants and they're from a different culture and so she's she has to hide um her uh her 
what she's doing as a soccer player from her family so that she can do that. And at the same time, her sister, her older sister is about to be married. And uh, so there's a lot going on in her family and there's a lot that she has responsible for to, to her family. And then she wants to be responsible to her team um, and, and be able to fulfill her dreams of being a soccer player. And it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it you is know, awesome. I- it is. <laughs> I was surprised when I watched this back how much like I the, number one how much I remembered because I have not seen this movie since the early 2000s when I saw it as a young person sure. um, and some parts for me just how funny some of the surrealism is like when she's going to take that final shot and she sees her aunties and her, her sister all dressed up in their oh, saris on the, so the field uh, that just killed me like there's just a few little moments here I'm like okay this is really funny and very visual like it's it's a movie it's not just a lot of, like I find a lot of rom-coms get very talky this doesn't this is a, yeah. an, a sports movie first and foremost which is I think one of the reasons why it translates so well and why many people want to see it as I think there's a very relatable element at the very core or when you have your protagonist who is going for one goal and then the love happens on the side it becomes more relatable here and this is someone who is trying to achieve quite frankly becoming a professional sports player is a nearly astronomically impossible goal and that's what she's going for and I think like any sports movie that's infinitely relatable about sports movies I think that people often don't understand when they say I don't like sports movies is that they think it Sports movies are always about something else. They're always, um, even if it's a really traditional sports film, it's rooted in love. It's either rooted in love of the game, you know, or love of the people around you that support you because you, like you said, it's virtually impossible to get quite far. Um, so they, there's always people that are there to support them. And they're, you know, they have those relationships that really matter to this, the plot. So I feel like that's why people love sports movies they think they don't but they do you know because it's often like you know every every, even the best players have been an underdog at some point so um the everybody can relate to that being an underdog so that's why i think sports movies do quite well um and i think that um people have hang-ups about what they don't know about the actual technicality of the sport and you don't get weighed down with that in this film you can see that they're highly skilled and that they're good and that's the, and that's, it's kind of the magic of like filmmaking too, is that she doesn't have to tell you a lot in the plot. It should, there's not a lot of exposition about soccer. Mm-hmm. It's just shown to you that oh, these guys are good. We know that it's translated quite well. This is also another movie which we talked about. It doesn't happen now because they just don't have time or money for it, but all of these cast members went to soccer boot camp. They all went to football boot camp. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Kira Knightley, when they were talking, when one of the coaches who was co- talking or working with her was talking about her later, he's like, had she started younger, she could have been a professional. Like, Whoa. apparently, she is wow. has the capacity to be at that level. But like we talked about with uh, Bring It On, they went to cheerleading boot camp. The yes. same thing happened here. So when you're watching them do the thing, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, is because of the lack of money, the way people are pushing things through, you don't get to watch people do the thing anymore they just cut away to something and you just make that oh, okay they did that thing and it was cool here like you're watching them do the drills you're watching the game happen you're watching the cool saves and I think that's what you want and that's how you get caught up in the excitement and how you get engaged with a, even a game you don't understand which let's just talk about where soccer was in the fact that North Americans didn't know who David Beckham was at this point <laughs> this was their introductory point and yet this became one of the biggest hits on the planet despite you know soccer not being a thing in North America yeah well I guess it rock 
Rocky's a group blueprint for like all these films, you know, it's like that montage, the montages in Rocky, you know, that dominate that <laughs> series, you know, like Rocky, if you look at the films, it's mostly montage, you know, and that, that's great because, you know, it gets, it moves the story along. It's a gr- excellent plot device, but it's done quite well. And I feel like Ben and like Beckham has for uh, like, as a sports film, has some of the best montages, yeah. like of like athleticism. It's incredible. And also the, the music choices are, are great. It's a, like really exciting. Like it just gets you really caught up emotionally. Um, I think it's, they did such a great job rewatching it. I'm like, oh, it just, you know, I realized like it's like a top, top, top tier. Uh, well, actually, the, you know, there's a few uh, films that are made by women that are the top tier mm-hmm. sports films. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of the perfect person to run a sports <laughs> program because I feel like maybe if a man was looking at it, they wouldn't see that women have maybe the best sports films like in the top i'm talking like top five uh, definitely the top i would like 10. to point sports films are all all time are mainly dominated by i would women. also like to point people towards my personal favorite sports movie of all time slap shot which was written by a woman which mm-hmm. is the broiest movie ever and was written by a woman just, it, it's just it, like when people talk about women don't know about sports well you'll just look at cinema yeah. and you'll see that women have the best some of the best sports films ever Kira made. Kusama's Girl Fight, which we've talked about on this podcast. Like, it's just, just keep going on Girl the list. Fight, League of Their yeah. Own, Bring It On. Like, it just, it's endless. You know, um, uh, Whip It. Like, it just keeps, you know, yeah. it's like. So I, why do we, why do we best. think that is? What is it about women writing these, these films? And our second movie is also written by women, although it's not a sports movie. But what is it that women in this specific genre are, uh, what are they bringing to the table that, potentially is being missed in other quarters? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I feel like this weekend I watched a movie called Polite Society, which is like an action movie that just came out recently. And it's about two sisters. It's similar to Bend It Like Beckham, actually, in a lot of ways, because there's like a wedding happening on the side, but then um, the main character wants to be a stunt woman. Um, Anyways, I watched this movie And I didn't know it was directed by a woman, but I really enjoyed it. And as Vanya knows, like, I sometimes, like, don't love action movies. Like, I have have a back and forth with them. But when a woman directs them, I'm on board. Like, and that movie, I felt on board. And then I rewatched Point Break yesterday, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, women just know what I want to see, which is that they, I don't think they focus on that technicality of, of any game or... Um, any fight scene, they get to like the core of what you want to see, which is, is the emotion. I think Um, Mm -hmm. uh, they do the close-ups on the face in addition to the close-ups on the feet moving, you know, like we, we really feel connected to the characters so much so that we like want to see what's going to happen in the game. I I don't know that that's my impression because every time I watch a sports movie directed by a woman or an action movie directed by a woman, I'm like all in. Whereas Sometimes I'm not when I'm, when a man makes a movie, and, and maybe that's my personal bias as a woman in film enthusiast. I, I agree with that. I also think there's an element I talked about already of like sacrifice and like want, you know, that maybe women understand on a deeper level, like continually being knocked down and then having to keep pushing, because that's kind of like what sports is like built. It's built into sports, right? That. I, you have to keep getting up and you have to keep pushing forward no matter what. You don't really have a choice. If you want to be the best, you have to keep going forward. And women are kind of, we, we're used to that. 
we're used to that feeling. We know what that feeling is on a regular basis, like just in life where, you know, maybe when man does like has to do it, they have to tap into it in a different way. And also it's like handed to them, you know, sports, like the idea of sports is like given to them that they're the best and that, you know, that no one can be as good as them. So it's just easy, right? Where with women, you understand, understand the desire on a different level that it maybe even is more than just, it's more than just winning. It's being like, like that fulfillment, you know, of knowing that you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And in this movie, Jess is like battling her family, but also just the fact that like there's limited space for women to play soccer in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Like um, there's only this one club, which is like uh, crazy. Like Joe could go anywhere and play soccer, right? Like whereas- Well, and that's the point. And there's yeah. a prestige with him, the fact that he is coaching the women's team and his father doesn't approve of that. There's a lack of prestige that you are somehow coaching a lesser team. And that's, I think, really baked into this. We should talk about the fact that this is actually based on a true story, which I had no idea until I started reading about this. Me either. Of, uh, one of the first South Asian uh, players for um, any of any league, really, that was outside of South Asia, but especially in the UK, where it's such a massive thing, uh, Permi Judy. And she originally was uh, supposed to play herself in this film. And she's like, the relationship with my coach was a thing. Um, like all, a lot of this is all baked in, but she was like, this is too light and fluffy. And I feel like you're, you're not doing justice to the struggle that I went through and how challenging it actually was. And so she decided to walk away. It's only later on, I think like maybe even after the film was released and even like a decade later, was she able to look at it and go with so many people approaching her and saying, this movie inspired me. I am who I am because of this movie, I want to do this, that she was able to kind of reconsider the film and go okay I, I see its value but she originally thought it was doing her a disservice because it played down da- it was too fluffy it would play down in fact how difficult her struggle was hmm. i could see how she would look at it like that because it, it, it it's you know like it has the the wedding stuff and it has like you know the you know she's focused on the game right all these other things seem like a distraction that maybe she didn't have. If you're working, if you're working for. at that level, though, you know? that's what that is. Like you, you literally live and breathe it. She doesn't. She she literally did not have time <laughs> for the theatrics yeah. of 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 that film. Like so, you know, you should have to like put it into mindset that okay, well, this has to be a movie, you know. And maybe she's just like, well, this is actually my life, and that would be difficult to 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 watch and have to like play along with when it's like. You're like, oh, you know, this is tougher. Well, Gurinder Achata is interesting. So this obviously was the movie that like launched her into another level. Um, but she'd been making films with her writing partner slash uh, husband, uh, Paul Mayeda Burgess, for a very long time. So originally she ended up at Sundance uh, because of a film called What's Cooking. And What's Cooking examines cooking through uh, various women from various cultures coming together. And you're watching almost like vignette style. Um, so this is something that she kind of started out with this idea of like how do we show these cross cultures and how how are we different but how are we the same and that's very much a theme through a lot of her film uh, Bride and Prejudice is what she uh, followed up and it like Beckham with another like you know interracial bringing it into a whole new genre sort of film and then uh, she did my personal favorite one of my favorite books uh, Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging uh, or Full Frontal Snogging as it's called mm-hmm. in the books I love those books when I grew up uh, it's a very watered down version of what the books are the books are way more 
more open about sex and sexuality and just how much young girls want to bone. Um, and and, and uh, it's very toned down. So when I saw that one and I'm thinking about Bandit Like Beckham in this story, I'm like, okay, you're very good at making things very light, fluffy, and accessible and dealing with very, like this is a movie that deals with very serious topics. Juliet Stevens is a monster in this movie. Um, and yet, <laughs> at, at the end, everything seems to be tied up in a very neat little bow. Like, oh, she's not racist anymore. Yay! <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's a very interesting way of of approaching topics this heavy and still affect people as emotionally as they do, like, like yourself, Vanya. Um, but also still just like, skate on the top of all this but I think that's also mm. why it's so popular is because people can watch this and feel like I have had an experience I have watched something challenging when in fact they haven't been challenged at all mm. you know you look at something like you look at Bollywood or even Hollywood now um you know and there's like this joy there's this like yes. you know and you kind of have to kind of have to have that you know um it's it's a it's a good survival thing it's like every you know everything can't be like if you if if you were serious all the time, you know it would be even way worse. And it is it's kind of bumpy already. So might as well have some <laughs>, laughs along the way. You know you want to have some like you know like loose you know some relaxed some funny you know lighthearted heartedness in your life. You know so it makes sense that she would put that in. And there is a lot of joy in the in the community, you know? Um, oh, apparently the in, wedding got completely out of hand because she filled it with her actual relatives and they yep. actually started to party and they couldn't get the takes done. They were just like, just let the camera roll. So so you're watching a genuine party and I do think those party scenes are amazing. I they think you are. can feel the joy. Incredible. It's, it's like, yeah, I want to be part of that family. They're having a great time. The cutting back and forth between the wedding and the game is incredible. Like each thing that happens, you know, that's joyful on both sides and then you see it you know at the in the game then you see it you know oh, so it's fabulous that ties back to sort of women uh directing sports films and like and making that compare and contrast you know to be like um although she's struggling with her culture and struggling to fit in like there is so much joy here and there's also joy on the field like you can have both you know going back to what we were saying like you can you can get the guy and you can have the career like it's a melding of both and it's it's so like I don't know that much about sports but I don't need to to watch this movie do you know what I mean I know nothing about soccer I couldn't tell you a thing about soccer but I do know who uh, David Beckham is and partially because of this movie you know um, it's interesting oh. that like Mia Hamm they wanted to change the title apparently for, for the US because they for, knew who Mia Hamm was but they didn't know who Be David Beckham was which is so crazy because yeah. you're like David Beckham now we're like oh David Beckham everybody knows David Beckham and especially because he was married to Victoria of the this Spice is Girls the perfect place to get into it so I actually think one of the reasons this movie holds up as well as it does it has the nostalgia factor and it has the fluff that it does is how bouncy this soundtrack is now uh, we should get into and just because this is a history podcast I want to get into a little bit about the Spice Girls and like their own personal autonomy and how they started out and how they really did come out of nowhere. Emily, do you know much of the origin stories of the Spice Girls? Do you, Vanya? From what I know, there like there was a lot of like male uh, pop groups that were quite popular in the early '90s in the UK too. Like Take That, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so Boy's own enormous. Yes, and so we're not just talking <laughs> about like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. We're talking about the UK groups that were huge. 
And um, I think they wanted to create a female version of that. And so they like literally like looked for girls all over the UK and found these five and they gave them all the names that are so marketable, um, problematic, many Ah, of them. They didn't. They did. They, the girls gave themselves the names. The girls were the ones oh. that pushed for spice. They actually want here. Like I said, when I went down the road of like, holy shit, you guys had way more autonomy than I thought you did. Yeah. Um, no, they named themselves. They wanted to give them like a much lighter, fluffier name, like a, a pussycat doll sort of equivalent with like that defe- that feminization. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it worked so well because you immediately were like, I'm this one. I'm that one. Like you just wanted to be one of them, you know, like, I, like. I'm definitely yes. baby spice, but I wanted to be ginger spice, you know? Who did it? Because <laughs> she was she was the true girl power one of the group. Um, her and Scary, I feel like, really were the ones that um brought that. But yeah. And then I think also something that like aside from just the spice girls themselves, I think at this time period we were really starting to like market toward tweens. Like tween was becoming a group because in the 80s they were marketing to teens. They were like, okay, like the John Hughes of it all. Um but they're like, oh, there's an mm-hmm. untapped market of of girls that are not quite teens yet that we can get to. And I was I was in that group, right? So like I was like this was I was totally sold um anyways the spice girls like we think of them being the biggest thing ever but they really only existed for a short period of time yeah it's in the influence as well i want to just just say like this is one of the most badass things i think i've ever heard and this is uh weirdly changed music history which you need to especially with the way and we look at k-pop and j-pop now and the way those bands were developed this is the placeholder Mm -hmm. of why we they have those boot camps and in in like K-pop and all that, this is what it's built on. So for they got all these women together, and for a year they put them through a massive boot camp. They lived in the same house. They were paid fifty dollars a week, and this is all they did, and it was nonstop. But here's the thing: is that because one of them left early and was replaced with Emma Bunton, they were like, "We're going to invest a ton of money in these girls, and we want to make sure that like if one of them isn't working out, we can boot them as quickly as possible." Wow. So they didn't actually sign them to a proper contract. They just mm. had them there, and this is what was happening. Now they go and they re- start recording their first songs, and one of the first songs they start recording is "Wannabe." And they are like, we know this is a hit. And it's literally them just like riffing, which is wild when you think about that. So what happens is, is they realize that their management doesn't actually know what they're doing. They don't think Wannabe should be the lead single. They think it should be one of the ballads. And they're like, these guys have no idea what the hell they're doing. So in the middle of the night, they move out of their house, they go to the studio, they steal the masters, and then they go and take it to Simon Fuller. Simon Fuller takes them on, and because there's no contract, and they are the artists and the creators, they and there's no writing credits for the, the managers, they just are managers, they can do exactly that. Wannabe gets released, they sign an actual contract, and they become the largest band on the planet. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> oh my god. Great story. That's that's wild. That's wild. Well, Mel C gets some songs in the soundtrack to Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, she like really had yeah. a singing. Uh, people say she was the one with the voice, you know, in the group. And she really did do sure. some more songs, including that one with Brian Adams that 
I can't get out of my head. Um, (laughs) So good. It's so good. I I think it's so interesting. Like I, we've been talking a lot about the like feminist element of the Spice Girls, but I think there's like sort of a a queerness to the Spice Girls, especially Mel C. um, And the fact that she's used so heavily in the soundtrack and even reference like the, like, um, Jules' Julia mom Stevens, is mom. like is yeah. like yeah. There's a reason why Sporty is the only one without a fella, and you're like, mm-hmm, yeah. yeah no, there actually, is a reason. She's straight. We need to be clear. She is actually straight. She says, "I wish I was gay, I but know. I am not." Assumptions were made. It's like the Natasha Leone of the Spice Girls. Uh, yes. But yes, um, yeah. Like, and so this movie has sort of a, a queerness to it that like is never quite explored, and really breaks my heart because I I don't know about you guys, but like. I'm not really into Joe. Like I am into Jonathan yeah. Rice Myers. Love him, love him, love him. Loved him since Velvet Goldmine. But I don't, number one, he's her coach. Number two, yeah. I don't know. I'm more into Jules and Jess. I just am. I just am. Because there's actual chemistry. There's a lot of physical contact in this movie between the women. There's mm-hmm. a lot of hugging. There's a lot of kissing on the cheeks. This movie is gay as fuck. And not, <laughs> I am not the only one that thinks this. In fact, um, Kira Knightley has actually talked about how she wants this to be remade and have them be gay. She said they actually talked about this on set where they were like, how are they not ending up together and why is she ending up with Joe? Like this is, so at, <laughs> even at the time. But- I think had you added that queer element to this, this movie would not have been the mega hit at this time. So it's one of those things where I think there's a lot of coding here for young women and the fact these other, for young queer women. um, And I think a lot of the understanding that these two are headed off to America with no other supervision, no boyfriends, new (laughs) world. I think if you were to visit them, you know, five years later, there there would be a very different living situation. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely think that I think that Jess is bisexual. I do. I do think that. But I think that Jules is not. <gasps> I think Jules is a lesbian. I think Jules, when she sees them together and is upset by them seeing Jess and um, Joe together, why are all their names started? Um, <laughs> That's sorry. Actually, I just realized that. I'm like, That's, that's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was having a hard time saying all their names together. Uh, when she sees Jess and uh, Joe together, I don't think she's really upset about Joe at all. She's upset about Jess. She's like, oh, you know, I just brought you on. You're like, you're you're my person now, you know, like, and now I'm, I'm losing you to yeah. him, right? Where it's, I think she th- thought if they're, he kn- she knows about him, then she'll stay away from yeah. him. But really it's a, to get close to just so that she can have I Jess. think that's a great I think she's point. more upset about that than she is about yeah, Joe. That's a, that's a fantastic point. But I do think that Jess is, to me, she's bi. Yeah, hundred, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Vanya. <laughs> All right, I agree. <laughs> but I, the reason, oh, there's another reason why I think that Jules is a lesbian. It's because when they're in the car and her, um, her mother is saying that she's, le- telling her she's a lesbian, she says that she's not that they were she doesn't say she's not she doesn't actually deny it really she says that they were fighting over joe and then she says is there there's nothing is there something wrong with being a lesbian basically yeah. and her mom's like no and then she she's because she she's like there's nothing wrong with that mm. kind of saying well, if i was a lesbian where are you gonna yeah, be I'm you know testing the waters about that mm-hmm. yeah and jess never has those questions on her side but Jules does. And it's kind of, you know, like, 
okay, I wish I could come out to you now, but I can't because you're acting the way you're at because of the way you're that acting. That is a great. Because I would have come out Yeah, to that's you. a fantastic point. That's the way I read it when I was watching it this wow. time. Yeah, I didn't even catch that. That's great. I'm just like, no, they're gay. <laughs> just, just but, but I think you're right. It's <laughs> Well, I, I'm bisexual, so I'm yeah. kind of like, yeah, to me, just like in my head, she thinks the way I do, you know, where like I can see that she really does um, like Joe, like she's attracted yeah. to him, right? But then she has another re- kind of relationship with Jess. I mean, once they're over yeah. it. And also what's wild well, is that there is a gay character in this film who has not yet come out to yes. his parents. It's one of those things of like, oh, interesting. Okay, you're doing that as like a little side tangent thing. Uh, I also just, as we kind of wrap up this film, because I know we're having a great time, but we have to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We got to move on to the next one where there's a bunch more to dig into. Yeah. Um, this movie was the first film to be shown, Western film to be shown on television in North Korea, edited down to an hour, which is something where I was like, <laughs> This movie, and I get, um, it's soccer. It's 100% the sports. Sports are the great unifier. Everybody can relate to this. Um, <laughs> I once interviewed Ken Scott. Are you familiar with who this is? He's a, a Quebecois filmmaker who's known for like enormous films, including the Le Grand Seduction, The Grand Seduction. Mm-hmm. And he, when I was talking to him, he said that the first country that purchased uh, The Grand Seduction was South Korea. And he was like, why? And they were like, because it's a small, it's a a story about a small town, a fishing village that is looking for a doctor. And it was like, interesting. Uh-huh. So I, as I was going through, I like, trust me, I tried to dig into like, how was this received? Why this movie, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can only begin to kind of speculate what exactly they edited out to make this an hour. But I mean, I really do think it is the great unifier is sports and soccer. And that's one of the reasons this was such an enormous hit. Yeah, I agree. Perfect. All right, well, let's move on to our next film. You know it's my big fat Greek wedding. It's going to be a party. It's going to be so uplifting. That's coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something? Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost. Even the big boys, and like forget about uh, you know discovering black directors of the nineteen seventies, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out, and it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. Think of some of the biggest box office hits in recent memory. 
big franchise movies like those from Marvel or Harry Potter, obviously. But what if I were to tell you that one of the biggest is actually a tiny independent rom-com made for just $5 million, which ended up grossing over $200 million at that time box office and came fifth in the year's top of the box office. In the days of streaming, where a theatrical release is so limited before offloading to another platform, a theatrical juggernaut like my big fat Greek wedding couldn't have gotten the steam it needed to be the little engine that would last for 52 weeks, longer than Titanic. But how did this little story about a goofy Greek family become a wild success? Let's find out. Now, I feel like my big fat Greek wedding has now become a punchline. And we forget how much people actually love this movie. And going back and watched, I was like... I love this movie too. <laughs> it's it's very it's very endearing and very charming. Um, Emily, how do you feel about this one? Does this hold up for you? Yeah, I really like it. I'm excited. There's a third movie coming out this year. I'm excited. I saw the second one. I feel like this is just such a like warm movie. Like like I actually showed it to my partner Perry. He'd never seen it probably because uh, as I have learned, uh, if it's a really lady forward movie, he probably didn't watch it in his. Form- formative years which I am trying to correct but uh but we watched it and he was like this is just delightful this is like a movie that they don't necessarily make or don't make well anymore it's just a great family drama while also being a romance while also being a comedy like Andrea Martin in this movie is so so funny like Amazing the babopsy or whatever she says <laughs> like it is out of control funny and I think that we need that kind of levity. I know that this movie came out in 2002, obviously, which is after 9-11. And I think we needed that joy and we needed sort of like you were talking about, um, Vanya, like, you know, you can't just be in pain all the time and you can't, like you need some levity. And this movie really brings it to you every single time. And Nia Vardolos, like, she's so freaking charming. Uh, I would like to make this a double feature with Father of the Bride and call it Unbridled <gasps> Joy. Uh, I think that's that's what needs to happen. Uh, also, just as you said that about Andrew Martin, I was like, oh, she's doing Franck. This is her Franck equivalent. Oh my gosh, you're so right, Becky. With like the wild <laughs> accent and like the stories and the fact that she's barely comprehensible, it's it's Franck. So I go to the doctor and he did the bio, the bop, the, the bios, the, bop, the bopopsy. There were a couple times where I thought I would never stop laughing when <laughs> she sticks her thing, finger on her collarbone and says she's like like a chicken, like she's like an yes. like bone, and she jam, jams her finger. And I was like, that is this one of the funny. And it's also new um her facial expression is really, really funny there. Uh and I, I just thought that Andrew Martin's brilliant. She's brilliant. Like, I mean, Oscar worthy, brilliant, yeah. like as far as funny. And I know that doesn't like usually translate funny. It doesn't translate often there, but really it is that, that good. She's really that good. Um, I, I just thought, I just couldn't believe some of the things that she was doing. Well, if people have somehow missed this mega hit, it isn't actually a movie about Andrea Martin being amazing, although she does help (laughs) contribute to the movie. Emily, why don't you give people a very brief plot summary about what this one's about? Yeah, basically, there's this 30-year-old Greek girl named Tula who's always kind of been like a fish out of water. We see scenes of her, you know, back in the day in the lunchroom, uh, taking out her lunch and people making fun of her for being Greek. 
And uh, she's just kind of uncomfortable with herself. And she works at her family's restaurant. And her family is huge and very tight-knit. Um, and then as she turns 30, she kind of realizes that she wants to branch out. And she's kind of uh, longing for love. And she finds this uh, cute non-Greek guy named Ian um, that she falls for. And she starts to go to college. And she starts a new job. And she just sort of blossoms. But her family is not so happy with the fact that she wants to be with a non-Greek man. There's a lot of drama around that, similar to Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, and she's kind of got to convince them that this is the guy for her. And chaos ensues. Uh, plates are broken. Windex is uh, sprayed on every <laughs> orifice. Uh, but it is just a joyful movie about sort of uh, reconciling your need to grow as a person while also, you know, retaining uh, respect for your culture. At the same time. I think there's a lot of pale imitators of this film. I think there's a lot of people that genuinely do not understand how this movie works. And I think the biggest thing is, number one, it's true. Like, this is all based on, like, Nia Var Vardalos's uh, relationship with her family, all the weird quirks, all the people. Uh, it's also why, um, originally, everyone thought this is one of the best spec scripts they'd ever written. So, Nia Vardalos wrote this, uh, originally wrote this as a play, was performing in L.A., uh, and people were coming up to her being like, we absolutely love this movie. Everybody wants to buy the script. It's one of the hottest things. But everybody was like, we need to change the ethnicity. No one knows anything about Greek. No one cares about Greek. At one point, they wanted to make them uh, Puerto Rican, and it was a J-Lo comedy. And she was like, I'm sure J-Lo is lovely, and I will write something for her someday, but this is for me. And that was really the hinge catalyst of like, hey, so I'm from this little girl from Winnipeg just hanging out in L.A., and I have a great spec strip. Make me the star. And it's like, yeah, that's going to happen. Him. Yeah. Well, that is what happened. Like, I think what part of what makes this film so charming is also the backstory behind it, which we're going to get into it. But what I think everybody loves about this is the family drama, but also the fact that this is the safest movie that still has conflict ever made. At no point do you ever think she's not going to end up with Ian. Ian is in love with her from the moment he sees her. Ian wants to be with her. Ian thinks she's amazing. She has to figure out she's amazing and has to come with terms, ter terms with who she is. And I think that's something that people are very scared of doing because movies need conflict. That's what drives them forward. So people are like, well, he, they have to have a big blowout fight and she has to cancel the wedding and they have to... That never happens. And she also doesn't get the wedding she wants. She goes along with her family the entire time. The, the first thing she says when she sees herself in her wedding dress isn't, oh, my family was right and I'm having this magical moment. It's, I'm a snow beast. <laughs> but what it comes down to is the fact she is making sacrifices because she loves her family and she loves this man. And this man is okay with her making these sacrifices and going along with her plan. This is a wild movie when you really think about what it's doing and that we have <laughs> never done this before or since. It's one of my biggest pet peeves is when I, I feel like you don't have to be that contrived about the drama. You could just let things happen and it can be really good. And this movie succeeds in doing that. You know, it, like she doesn't tell like silly lies. You know, there's a moment where he asks, he's, he says, oh, we should go to this restaurant and it's her family's restaurant. And she just, she doesn't want, you know to go there but she doesn't say oh uh you know i don't i you know i don't really like greek food or whatever or she tries to lie about it and then it comes up later you know that's what would happen 
you know, probably in a rom-com now and has happened in many rom-coms where she will just lie about it and then she'll get caught up in her web of lies and then it will be a thing. And then he'll be like, why are you lying to me? And then they'll break up for a while and then they have to get back together. That didn't happen. And it's so refreshing to, even though it came out 2002, I rewatching it. I was, this is so refreshing to, to experience something where you know that they're going to be together because that's not really what it's about. Them breaking up is not what it's about. No point does your mother say, I have to go to the bathroom, don't hit pause. You know, like she wants, she wants (laughs) to be there the whole time because there's just like you float through this movie. And I think one of the big things to point out is this is one of the first films released after 9-11 happened. So we're currently sitting in 2002. 9-11 has just happened. When you look at the box office, and we'll be talking about this when we talk about the film Signs, which is also really important to watch, is the, a lot of the movies that are doing well are either extremely floaty like this or Bend It Like Beckham. Even um, Gurinder Chanda points at, uh, at her movie as being like, it did extremely well because of 9-11 and people needed fluff. Um, and, and then the other movie is Signs. Signs is about a family, uh, that gets caught up in a incident larger than itself and then has to protect itself and survive, right? That's why that was number four at the box office. This came number five. And then the other two, the other two were franchise movies. It was the, the new Star Wars and Harry Potter. And there's another one, but like, that's why these tiny little stories about these, like just family, just like being okay together. That's why they were mega hits. Mm-hmm. and how these families like respect each other They're, they stick together even when they have like animosity like there's you know even when they're having challenges they really do stick together all the families yeah, yeah. and they like even when ian first comes to the restaurant and they're having that party like they just like accept him like they tease him like i love the parts when the the brothers and the cousins are like telling him things to say and he, making him embarrass <laughs> himself but like they they take him in their arms, literally in the restaurant and like push Tula aside for Ian, you know, <laughs> it's like, yes, it's a little bit dramatic, but like ultimately they love Tula and they are going to love Ian, you know, and I, I love that. Like, you know, there isn't big drama, but there's like little dramas that are natural dramas between family. Like I, one of the things that really struck me in this watch was like the brother Tula's brother who keeps trying to get the dad to look at his art and I was just like that is so it it breaks my heart because I'm like oh he just wants to redesign the menu and he's really trying and you don't want to listen and you don't care but like maybe if if he said listen dad I I want you to look at my art maybe he'd listen because Gus, that character of the dad, he really carries the movie emotionally, I think. Michael Constantine's amazing mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah, him and Lainey Kazan yeah. are like the perfect pairing for this. Joel Zwick, who directed this film, would later go on recently, I think it's like 2021, uh, he directed another movie that's this kind of like culture mashup called uh, Tango Shalom, uh, where he, she is an Argentinian <laughs> tango dancer and he comes from rabbinical parents. And Lainey Kazan <laughs> is the lead in that as well. So he's oh, like, wow. I'm, I'm getting that magic going again. Um, but <laughs> we should say that Michael Constantine has since left us. He is not in the third film. He actually gave his blessing to do it because Nia Vardalos came to him and said, hey, we want to make a third. And he's like, I am not well, but I I wish you well. Like, So yeah. I, I think it tells you just that, the fact that she came to him and he said that, the feeling that this is a family movie in more ways than one. Like yeah, everybody I, is very connected here. You can't mm-hmm. make any of these movies without 
the majority of the cast. Like everybody is intrinsic to it. Joey Fatone, he's intrinsic to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> Actually, it took me a minute because I totally forgot. I was like, Joey Fatone. <laughs> oh yeah, and he's. You know what? I like him, and he's so charming. He's very funny. Hey, Ian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna kill you. Uh, <laughs> I think I remember seeing that trailer. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, sorry. As far as the box office is concerned you know it really reminded me recently i was talking about uh crocodile dundee mm. it has like a similar like because crocodile dundee was like this kind of a small film that c- came out of nowhere and ended up making so much money and also being nominated for an oscar for screenplay insane the character is it hinges on um the character being the main character being charming and i feel like that's what this movie is you know you you, she's so endearing um the and then the family is too you know so it's not surprising it's just we don't really get films like that anymore because we don't give films like that a chance in the at the box office because they get blown away in the first or they don't push them is the other issue right and so let's let's actually let's get into that right now vanya great (laughs) great way to segue This is the perfect place for us to get into uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson and Playtone Films that, aside from being actors and musical performers in the case of Rita Wilson, um, these are also mega producers. And you may not know that they've also produced movies like Mamma Mia 1 and 2. Uh, They produce HBO's Big Love. Like, they have some serious hits under their belt and it all kind of starts with my big fat Greek wedding. So, Vanya, why don't you walk us through how this all kind of happened? How Rita Wilson got into my big fat Greek wedding and met met Nia Vardalos? Because Rita Wilson's Greek too, and uh, so she she was the one who threw her energy behind the behind the script. Uh, am, am I right? I, I feel. <laughs> I think I don't know if I could go much further than that. I just know that 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 that's the main connection i mean she was a she could champion it because she had a connection to the culture and she became obsessed with it and she like emily was just talking about was dragging her partner to go see things that she fell in love with so she dragged tom hanks to go <laughs> see it and tom hanks was actually looking for pro- uh, projects to produce with his wife for the new playtone uh label now playtone also people will probably find that familiar because that was the fake record label in that thing you do yeah and so that's what he named his production company absolutely adorable um so he is actually Actually producing things with Gary Goatsman, who is a former child star, now a mega producer, who, if people do not know, partly inspired the character of Gary Valentine in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. So you got you got connections all over the place. Uh, Tom Hanks and Gary Goatsman see this this one woman show and are just like. Yeah, let's go. And according to Nia Vardalos, there was never any question that she wasn't going to be the lead. Um, and so they start going to try to get funding for it. They're able to get funding. This is actually a Canadian co-production. Mm-hmm. This is a Canadian film. It is shot on the Danforth. Apparently, yeah. uh, Greek restaurants around it were so very excited that they were shooting a Greek movie. They catered for free. Restaurants were just showing up with food and were like, here, please enjoy. We're so glad that you're making a movie about Greek people. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so that all went down. Then this film, they're like, okay, well, we need a distributor. And Tom Hanks was like, well, do you want me to put some muscle behind it and get someone? But they actually got approached weirdly by IFC. 
because the head of IFC, and this is not a, a company that's really known for like light, fluffy movies. Usually they're doing horror movies or very serious drama, that kind of thing. He attends a screening where uh, a woman literally broke her hip falling out of a chair laughing so hard. <laughs> They did not stop the movie, but they did have to bring the lights on and bring like a gurney in. It was at, I'm, I'm positive it was Andrew. Oh, yeah. Bobopsy. Bobopsy was the one. <laughs> and so at this point, they then he's like, okay, well, there's something here. So they start with a very small scale rollout. And they're like, okay, we're going to open in like 30 theaters. We see how it goes. This starts to just go. And they're like, all these start to sell out as word of mouth starts to go. You guys need to see this movie. You need to see this movie. It's IFC. They don't have a ton of money. Then they go, okay, well, we're going to do a wider rollout. And that keeps going. And so here's the biggest thing is they never put the cart before the horse. They were always like, let's see how far we can go with this. So they never like did a huge expansion. They always kept it very steady. This never came number one in the box office. This never made more than $12 million in a single weekend. It's the fact that it ran as long as it did is what made up the box office and that people kept going because yeah. they weren't releasing it to a VOD stream. They said what, uh, what made them eventually pull it from theaters was they had a contract to play it on planes. So oh. that is actually why they pulled it. Otherwise, it would still be playing today. Um, but but it, it, <laughs> this will never happen again, ever. Like, it just, it, it can't. Mm. Uh, especially because we don't, as you said, it, it, you're dead in the water if you don't have an amazing opening weekend. And that's not always what it's about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy to think that this little movie that could, like, blew up so much. But I think it, number one, speaks to, like, a lack of representation in, in media. Like, I'm, I'm sure people, like, Greek people must have been freaking out being like, this is my family. This is my family that's being presented yeah. authentically by someone from our culture. Um, it only breaks my heart that this is not set in Toronto or Winnipeg, where Nia Vardolis is actually from. It's Chicago, right? Yeah. Um, because I did recognize, I was like, man, I know those restaurants. I know that backdrop. I, I know this place. Um, and even if you're not part of the Greek culture, I feel like this movie just feels so familiar to you. It just feels like home in a way. If you are invited into the Portocala's home. And you feel like you're part of the family. You know everybody. You know a little bit about everybody. And it's so it's so charming. And you know what? Like, actually, Becky, I was reading that technically this was a script first, like a, like a screenplay. It wasn't getting picked mm -hmm. up by anybody. Then she turned it into the one-woman show. And then it became a script again. And mm -hmm. the thing with the one-woman show is, like, it, it was similar grassroots success. It was, like, all these people came out in droves community-wise to see this play. And then it started to gain traction. And I think that, like, we forget about the power of community sometimes these days when we're talking about films. And that, like... It doesn't have to be a hit right out of the gate. It's about finding the right people. Like, Well, and also, as we're discussing the dangers right now of AI and generalizing and making art for the mass market, you you lose stuff like this. Yeah. This yeah. would never get made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's yeah. like uh, I, was, I was just in suburbia this weekend seeing Asteroid City, and we went to a Kelsey's after to like have dinner it was like the most <laughs> suburban experience but anyways we were talking with the waitress and she's like what are you guys doing and I said we well, saw Asteroid City she didn't know what Asteroid City was and I was like that's like 
that's Wes Anderson. Like that's like the big time. They no nope. people mm-hmm. don't know about like indie movies anymore unless they're released on Netflix, you know? Like I don't know what would happen to this movie. I mean, I think the audience would still embrace it, but like would it would it have had the same impact if it hadn't been able to pr- like slowly permeate the culture? I don't know. I think it's strange that <laughs> Hollywood has to keep learning this lesson over and over again that people want to see themselves represent represented on on screen. Like it just keeps there's there'll be a big success and then everybody will talk about it and then they'll just go back to their own, you know, their old ways over and over. It doesn't make any sense. You know, the reason why we have crazy rich Asians, it wouldn't exist without my big fat Greek wedding, you know, like that is a, it's a similar success of tapping into oh my gosh it's finally seeing us in this in this way you know um and you know weddings is perfect because weddings bring people together right they bring your whole family together and it's a good opportunity to show a community like a wider community same with ben, like beckham it works in that way too you know oh we get to see more of the community because we're seeing a wedding because everybody's coming together and it, it just keep they keep not learning their lesson that people want to see themselves. Yeah, you want to make money. And this, this is the other thing too, is I think um, we are winding up the podcast and I feel like one of the most important things that I've learned from this podcast is that um, it's not about the big box office initially. It's about these small little engines that could, that really stick with people that are unusual and weird and like their chances. So I would rather watch 50 movies made for $2 million than one movie made for, you know, a hundred and whatever million dollars. I think that's more interesting to me. So you think about big franchise launchers we have now like Ghostbusters who the hell looked at that spec script and went let's green like Ghostbusters you know we're a bunch of psych nerds and we're looking for things and we're bad at it like what you know and it's beloved and I think it's the same thing that's what I would really rather have and I think you're right Vanya that is exactly the lesson people need to learn in Hollywood is that the real money and the real longevity and the franchise comes from these smaller stories that are very specific that people will see themselves in you know but have universal themes like this is about my family is freaking weird I am deeply embarrassed by them but you know, I'm going to have, we, we can still have a good time and we can still come together. That's, that's why when people looked at the spec script, they were like, oh, we can't be Greek. We're just going to switch the ethnicity. We're just going to put another like label or color or mask or whatever you want to say on it. And it can be easily translated because the, the core of the story is so universal. Yeah. And I think about something like, uh, like Moonstruck, you know, like where it's like, it's like, like a very like, it's a very simple story. It's not contrived. It doesn't have all these bells and whistles. It's just here it is, you know, this is it, this happens and then this happens and it's, you know, everybody just goes along with it. And it's not really about like this big overarching story. It's about just being with the people. Like Emily was saying, like you want to be in that world. It's about just being with them. You know, I think about the proposal in this Mm -hmm. movie too like how he proposes to her is like so simple and sexy it's like the you know it's actually yeah it's kind of sexy and it's just like she just says yes she's just like yes (laughs) and she's laughing she's laughing she's so happy and it's that's it it's not this big thing so I think the last thing we have to talk about actually is the John Corbett casting because uh, people also forget what an enormous deal the Aiden versus Big versus with Carrie <laughs> oh, Bradshaw yeah. thing was. 
But the biggest thing is that John Corbett, God bless him, he's a very attractive man, but he's deeply boring. <laughs> he is, he is the, the safe bet. And that's why she picked big over him, right? Is because he wasn't exciting enough. Yeah. He is perfect yes. for this movie. He is yes. like the most vanilla, safe, very attractive, <sighs> like, you know, bring him home to mama. Like, he is totally safe. <laughs> and that's why his casting is so perfect. Yeah. Yeah. He's so cute. And what I find kind of funny is that um, Nia's real husband, Ian, the real Ian, is in this movie. And he plays Ian's friend. Um, and he doesn't look like John Corbett. He doesn't. He's he's an every dude, but he's kind of hot in his own way. I'm a big fan of Cougar Town, and he was on that show. Um, but like John brings he everybody else is so lively. You need him to be kind of simple, basic, boring. And I think, but John, like he really is that straight man to everybody else, and that is that's what works. Yeah, I think so. And I think that is the perfect place for us to end this episode. It was an absolute pleasure having you as always. Emily Gangye, thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. This was an absolute delight. And Vanya Garraway, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure having you for the very first time. Please tell people how they can hear more of you and read your work and see what you're doing. All right. Uh, yeah. So you can uh, find me on Facebook and Twitter as Nostalgiafile. So it's um, how it's said um <laughs> nostalgia file p-h-i-l-e um and it, on you can also follow my program paid and sweat on both those um apps too and um that's at uh, review cinema in toronto um i have that program once a month um and uh so yeah look out for me there i also do uh, some content writing for um uh, my online magazine that shelf uh, so you could you can find some of my writing on there too. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. And you can join us in two weeks where 2002 continues with some hits you may just remember. It's 8 Mile and 24 Hour Party People. And we're going to be joined by the hilarious Graham Clark. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Emily Gagné and Vanya Garraway as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>